Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. How can scientists predict future climate trends? How can they know the prehistoric past and what to do about deniers, including the president? My guests today answer those questions with humor and simplicity. Peter Domenicao is the dean of science at Columbia University. Kate Marvel has a Ph.D., in theoretical physics from Cambridge and does research at NASA. They could have had any job they wanted, but both of them chose to bring their talents to bear on climate change. Because as Kate argues, if we don't fix that, not much else will matter. And yet millions of Americans still want to debate whether there's even a problem to solve. Whenever we have a cold day, people are always like, oh, where's your climate change now? Of course. What do you tell them? Sometimes I don't respond because, you know, if somebody still believes that, what are you, you going to do? Um, but it's really important to note that weather is short-term and climate is these long-term averages, right? I cannot tell you what the weather in Boston next year in January is going to be like. But I can guess that it's going to be cold because I know what the climate of Boston is. I don't know if it's going to be snowing, if it's going to be sunny, but I know it's going to be cold in January in Boston. Where that gets complicated is that weather doesn't exist independent of climate. And by changing the climate, we're changing everything about the Earth, including the weather. Um, and I think of this kind of like, bear with me here, I, I think of this kind of like Lance Armstrong, right? So Lance Armstrong is really good at riding his bike. He would beat me in any bike race ever. Um, but Lance Armstrong was doping. And when we find out that Lance Armstrong was doping, we don't go back to every single race he's ever ridden in and say, okay, well, that one, he would have come third. That one, he would have been 57th. No, like we know he was doping and we know what doping does. So a lot of times when we ask how much did climate change cause this particular flood or drought or heat wave, that's not necessarily the right question because we're doping the weather. And we know what doping does. How much of it is some cyclical geologic history? 
And even if the contribution we're making is just the one straw that breaks the camel's back, isn't that enough to get you to want to curtail our behavior? I think that's actually a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, Because people keep telling climate scientists, like, oh, the climate's always changed. And we're like, we know. We told you that. We are essentially the people who study that. We figured that out. What percentage of the warming right now are humans responsible for? Over 100%. Humans are responsible for more than all of the warming. Because if it wasn't for us, the Earth would be cooling very slightly. It it would be. Because of what the sun's doing. The sun is getting ever so slightly weaker. So yeah, if it wasn't for us, tiny variation in the sun's output would be making it colder. Peter, I think, studied geology. So he can put this really in the context Mm -hmm. of the entire Earth history and the climates that we've experienced over the entire history of the planet. And actually, many people have talked about climate cycles, and this is often one of the discounts on what's causing global warming. It's always part of some natural cycle. And indeed, in the past, uh, there have been geological cycles of warming and cooling that have been driven by orbital variations, variations in the Earth's orbit around the sun, which are very gradual. The the shortest of these cycles is about 20,000 years long. And that's what's caused the pacing of the ice ages in the past. We've had ice ages, we've had warmer times, ice ages, warmer times. And And those resulted from what? When the Earth froze and you had an ice age, that was the result of what? So what the orbits do is they change the amount of sunlight you get during a given season. So let's say northern hemisphere summer. Where we're further from the sun. It's the Earth-Sun geometry. In other words, what causes the summer, this is great, um, half of Harvard undergraduates get this wrong. (laughs) What causes the seasons is the tilt of the Earth relative. Toward the sun. Toward the sun, And we're closer to the sun in our winter. Exactly. But pointed away from the sun. Right, so 10,000 years ago, we were closer to to the sun when we are pointed toward it. And what I see now is uh, that the fall is gone and the spring is gone. You're not wrong. Um, and sort of the, the earlier arrival of spring actually has implications for things like growing seasons, for crops. Um, it also has implications for things like pest-borne diseases. And so scientists have checked these things, and there's a whole rigorous area of attribution science where people look at long-term trends, and people do statistics to answer these questions. So is this a fluke, or is this something that's really happening? And changes in the seasons, not just in New York, but all around the world, are something that we expect and we see actually happening. Uh, I'll ask this question to Peter. Do you feel that people are always talking about some radical solution? I was reading online and and they talk about uh, dimming the sun was the article the other day. They're going to spray the clouds and the atmosphere with a chemical. Does that concern you, that, that kind of attitude that there's some quick fix that can happen? Absolutely, that concerns me. I mean, first it just begets this kind of hubris that humans can control everything. And we're far from that. I mean, there's nothing more humbling than trying to solve the the climate problem. The work that Kate does, for example, in the climate modeling, it's an incredibly hard problem. And, you know, the, the amount of intellectual horsepower that has to go and just to pose the question to understand what the attribution story is, how much of the global warming is due to human activities and natural factors. That's a tremendously complicated problem. Describe for me, Kate, what exactly is the work you're doing now? So I work on climate models, which are computer simulations of the climate. And those allow us to 
do projections into the future, but they also let us do experiments that we couldn't do in the real world. So, you know, what if a volcano went off in London? What would that do? Um, what if humans didn't exist? What would the Earth look like? Um, so I work with climate models. I work with an incredible amount of data that comes out of those models. And because I sit at an office of NASA, I work with satellite data sets to try to see what are the models telling us, what's actually happening, and are those the same thing? And what about you, Peter? What kind of work are you doing now? So, uh, as Kate mentioned, I'm a geologist, so I'm a marine geologist, and I use ocean sediments, which are the sort of ultimate repositories of sediment. And so they are these encyclopedias of Earth history that accumulate very quietly and in a very hidden way in the bottom of the oceans. And so we take sediment cores, and we can read these like a book. And so we can see how climate has changed in the past, what caused those changes, and more importantly, it allows you to put what's happening today and into the future in the context of the geological past. Is there a spot you go to that yields the most information? Fortunately, the Earth is mostly covered with ocean, so there's a lot of places we can do our work. Uh, for me in particular, I do work off of West and East Africa. So I study how the North African climate, the, the Saharan Desert, has changed over time. The Sahara Desert was once a completely vegetated region filled with crocodiles and hippopotamus and people, and then it transitioned. What happened? What happened was because of this variation in the Earth's orbit that I was telling you about, this wobble of the Earth, it changed the intensity of the African monsoon, which brings in rainfall from the ocean into the interior. It got weaker, and so the, the place became drier and drier, and suddenly the sands took over. And one of the interesting discoveries we made was that that transition from wet to dry happened within a couple of centuries. So it's this really rapid Which transition. There's a sneeze in terms of There's a history. sneeze, right. right. And Kate, what about you? Have you always been in this field? And uh, has it always been weather and climate related for you? No, actually. Um, so I did my PhD in cosmology, so specifically string theory, which is the physics of the entire universe. Um, and I kind of realized midway through my PhD that, you know, the universe is great, but but really, this is the best place. Like, the Earth is by far the best planet. Um, and so I was able to use my physics background to study the physics of the Earth's climate. And it's so fascinating. What would be, I'll go with you first, Peter, what would be some of the things you, that you would do right now to address this problem? Right. So if I was king of the world, the thing that I would do right now is support the Green New Deal, which is this investment in... Uh, infrastructure and uh, resupplying, repowering the planet. It's a shift toward renewables. It's adopting wide-scale battery storage. It's basically building up, in this country, national climate resilience as a way of addressing the climate problem because, there's, in my opinion, there's no solution toward this other than an economic market-based one. We can't drive the world into poverty. We can't drive the world into... Uh, you know, a dramatic way of, of of living relative to where we are now, certainly on the timescale we're talking about, which is my lifetime. This is not even my children's full lifetime. This is at the end of our lifetimes, we're going to be seeing these impacts. We can see this, for example, in real estate prices. So in houses that are right next to each other on, let's say, the Long Island coast or in, in Florida, and which is the two most recent examples, these are neighboring houses. One is more susceptible to flooding because it's slightly lower. The other one is less that the one that is more susceptible to flooding is selling at a 5 to 15% discount relative to its neighbor. Mm -hmm. So this is happening now. This is not you know, the real in, in economic the impact. Real, yeah, and it's, you know, this is billions of dollars that are moving that are evaporating from the economy as we speak. The uh, the fires in California, 
there's a paper that just came out just um, just a couple of days ago that estimates the economic impact of the California fires alone at four hundred billion dollars. Yeah, just to I, put that in context. That's half. Of, that's a little bit more than half of the U.S. military budget per year. Um, what about you? What would you do if you were the I don't want to. I don't want to get it right gender-wise. If you were the king, mm-hmm. I, can, I can be whatever I want. Um, right now, emitting carbon dioxide is free. Right. We don't charge anybody to do that, and I don't think it should be free because there is a cost to it. We're all paying that price, right. and so I would put a price on carbon dioxide. I would say you cannot do this for free. You actually have to pay the social costs. And, and friends of mine who work in related fields teach me that domestic usage, all the cars we drive around, that even those are significantly less than what industry does that causes air pollution, that industry itself is a far greater polluter than individuals. Do you agree with that or no? That's true, but I think it's important to keep in mind that industry is making products that we then consume. Um, So there's this is why climate change is such a hard problem to talk about, because it's an individual problem, but it's also a social problem. So you can lower your personal carbon footprint. You can eat less meat. You can make your home more energy efficient. You can drive less. You can fly less. And that Upgrade your appliances in your home. Upgrade your appliances. You can do all these things, and that will lower your personal carbon footprint. But if everybody only does a little, we'll only do a little. And that's because climate change is fundamentally a large-scale problem. We need action at a very large scale to address this problem. And so when people ask me, what's the number one thing I can do to combat climate change? It's vote. Mm-hmm. Is there anything the two of you disagree about? Almost certainly. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Scientists don't agree on anything. We fight all the time. If you go to a scientific conference, you will just see knockdown, drag out fights about stuff like how fast dirt dries out in the sun. Mm-hmm. You would not believe it. It's a really big problem. Actually. It's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> maybe we can start a fight about yeah, this right yeah, here. We could. Um, and so, for science, for there to be a scientific consensus on something, that's a really big deal. And I think it's also important to not confuse the word consensus with meaning that everyone agrees on exactly the same thing. The, the consensus is on the fundamental question of whether the observed warming we're seeing today, the weird weather we're seeing today, can be linked to human activity, specifically carbon emissions. And the vast majority of the scientists, basically everyone, agrees on that central topic. Uh, does it infuriate you that major oil manufacturers have been obscuring the facts of climate change so that they can make money? What do you say to them? I mean, what do you say to their scientists that are on their payroll? Well, they know. Um, you know, the scientists who work for Exxon know that climate change is real. Mm-hmm. They know that it's happening, and they know that it poses a major threat to their business. Um, what I would say to not necessarily a, an oil industry executive, but you know, your uncle who doesn't believe in climate change. Um, I, I'm a scientist, right? So I'm tempted to show graphs and charts and be like, read this paper. And and that doesn't work. That never works. Um, because a lot of this isn't about 
the facts. It's not about the science. And if we just give people more facts, that almost never changes their mind. Something that has a, a narrative that has really worked for some of my conservative family members has been, first, the military. The military takes climate change extremely seriously. Right. They view it as a threat multiplier. And all of the naval bases are at sea level. So they are very, very concerned about this. Right. Um, the insurance industry, um, if you were an insurance executive or a reinsurance executive, so the insurers of the insurance industry, and you didn't believe in climate change, you could undercut everybody else by coming along and offering lower rates. And if climate change isn't real, there's no incentive to take it into consideration. And yet the entire reinsurance industry takes this really seriously. So people with an economic motivation to take this seriously, take it seriously. Um, and that's something that's worked for my family members. Like, you won't listen to your daughter, who is a scientist, but you'll listen to the reinsurance industry. Um, and I think it's just, it's about the messenger. It's about the narrative. It's about the language that we use. And there's no one thing that's going to work on everybody. And not to pile on to you-know-who, but is it safe to assume that the voice that would uh, collate all this information and present to disparate sections of society should be the president of the United States as far as you're concerned? In an ideal world, yes, that, that's correct. I think, um, you know, it does need that kind of leadership. Indeed, the kind of transition we're envisioning for the future that will happen in our lifetimes requires that kind of leadership. Now, in the absence of that leadership, and there's this great uh, expression that's called we're still in, which is that the United States is still part of Paris. The United States is still commit, committed to the goals of Paris, yeah, despite there. right. So yeah, yeah so despite what uh, you know, who has said about pulling out of Paris, uh, that's 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 just artifice. The reality is that the uh, large industries, statewide coalitions, large emitters have gotten together and said, "We can do this." Was there something in your community where, when Trump was elected, you just thought, "Oh God, this it couldn't be any worse in terms of political leadership for this issue." The guy that comes up and sits there and goes, we're going to bring back coal. Mm -hmm. We have so much coal, he said, so many jobs in coal. And you're like, uh-huh, really? <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's um, well, what's amazing is that I think uh, certainly I'll speak for myself. I mean, I was, I was shocked at the implications I thought it would have for me at that point. And I am just so much more shocked now um, just in terms of the multiplication of mm -hmm. the problem uh, as time has, has progressed. I mean, beyond a president who said we're all in for Paris and we're all in with these goals, do we need to like, – like for one example, I'm someone who's thinking we have to have real action on a number of levels so that we would have a federal order that all fleet vehicles that would be used by institutions in the country had to be hybrid cars and electric cars, every school. Where's the government program? Well, you just order that. You just make that so. Is that an answer as far as you're concerned? So here's the problem with talking to scientists. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. My dream is to be completely irrelevant to the climate conversation. Um, my dream is just to, to do science and to learn about the planet. But all the fights we're having are about policies, are about should the government just mandate this or is there another way to do this? And I feel like that's an issue that reasonable people can disagree on. But we're stuck in this conversation where it's is climate change real? Yes, it's real. Is it us? More than 100% is us. And so 
you know, what you say sounds like a great idea. I'm on board. I'd vote for you. But I think reasonable people could probably disagree with that. But I don't think reasonable people can disagree that that this is happening and that this is a problem. I would agree. I mean, I would love it if I became obsolete. <laughs> I really think that's uh, that's really my life's ambition is to have made a difference to this I feel discussion. the same way about my Trump impression. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, we can finish. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, you know, I do think, you know, one of the things that society can really galvanize around or at least American society can galvanize around is that climate change is costing us now. It's real dollars. I mean, last year was roughly $300 billion in climate and weather-related damages. This year with, with the California fires, it looks like it's maybe even more than that. These are real dollars. This is, and this is, so regardless of whether you believe in climate change or not, imagine you're in some deeply red state and a deeply red county in that state. You are paying for this. You may not like it. You don't want to call it climate change or whatever, but you for sure are paying. Someone is paying that bill, and it's us. Will more of California experience longer droughts and therefore be susceptible to what happened, what's happening there now? On our current trajectory, the answer, unfortunately, is yes, yeah. that we're just getting a taste More of, of it how, how, how it can be. But to use film analogy, right. I'd like to pan left okay. to another Please. world where we've adopted a much more widespread uh, sourcing of, let's say, renewable power. We've come up with ways of, of storing that power and allowing capacitance to the grid. When you imagine a United States that's generating much more of its uh, electricity supply from non-fossil fuel-related sources, there's been this quiet revolution that no one knows about, which is called grid parity, which is that state by state, there's been this toppling of renewables becoming cheaper per unit of watt created than fossil fuel sources. And so now there's a majority of states where it's cheaper to build out renewables and, and deploy that energy than it is to build a fossil fuel plant. If you look at the price of solar panels, they're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper yeah. every year. Yeah. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope that eventually it'll just be nuts to use fossil fuels. And we can do things to make that day come way sooner. But eventually, maybe it'll be a, a hobby, right? Like riding a horse. It's, it's not the way you get to work. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. The coal industry in the U.S. employs fewer people than Arby's. And you wouldn't destroy the planet to save Arby's. World-renowned Columbia climate researchers Peter Domenical and Kate Marvel. One thing climate scientists, environmentalists, indigenous activists, and tourists all agree on is the importance of protecting forests. A pioneer on the business side of that effort is conservation biologist Charles Munn. I'm a big believer in creating parks and, and Indian reserves and, and, and protecting Let's them with ecotourism. Right. Ecotourism has to be part of the mix because you only need to have one lodge in partnership with local Indians at the mouth of a river of a million-acre rainforest park. And yet that one small lodge can have turnover of maybe $1 or $2 million a year, and it protects a million acres behind it because it keeps people from getting in behind it. So it's a, it's a very inexpensive way to protect enormous pieces of forest. And anything you can do that can slow down deforestation will help uh, slow down climate change. The rest of my conversation with ecotourism innovator Charles Munn can be found in our archive at heresthething.org. When we return, Peter Domenical and Kate Marvel on having kids in a warming world and on walking the line between despair and complacence.
Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This week, I'm talking to climate science researchers Kate Marvel and Peter Domenical. When you really understand the implications of climate change, some common life decisions take on extra weight. Do you have kids? Twin girls, 12. 12. You have kids, Kate? I have a child, yeah. You have a How old? Three. Uh, so you had your kid more recently. You had your kid fully inside the consciousness bubble of global warming. When you were having a kid, did you, were you like, yeah, you know, bringing a kid into the warmed world? I mean, absolutely. Um, and there's nothing that kind of makes those projections concrete, like having a kid. You know, I used to mm-hmm. think about, um, you know, like you, you run your computer model, you look at what it says, you look at the conditions of the planet in 2050. And you're like, oh, that looks bad. But then you realize, like, oh, my gosh, like, that's when my child is going to be an adult. That's when he might be deciding whether to have kids of his own. And that really personalizes it. That, that makes it not an abstract thing anymore. I remember years ago, the New York Times science section had an article about this topic. And they had bands going south and northward on the North American continent. And they basically said that these bands of meteorology are going to shift northward so that the weather in Miami will become the weather in Atlanta and the weather in Atlanta will become the weather in Washington and Washington will become New York and so forth. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. Um, and the scary thing is that in the tropics, in the countries that are already really hot, they're moving into a climate that we don't have an analog for. So, you know, a country on the equator, you know, what's, what's that climate going to look like? 
it's not going to look like anything we've seen before. The thing that really freaks me out, the thing that really scares me, is this combination of heat and humidity. So there's something called the wet bulb temperature, which is literally just you take a thermometer and you put a wet washcloth on it, and you see what it measures. And that measures a combination of heat and humidity. And that is a really critical thing for human health because that reflects your ability to cool yourself off by sweating. And if that gets too high then a healthy young person who's naked in the shade will be dead because you cannot regulate your body temperature by sweating. And we expect this to reach dangerous levels, especially in, in South Asia, regions of India, Bangladesh, um, by, the, by the middle or the end of the century. And that has major implications for people who work outside. Could climate change lead to actual adaptive changes in the human genome, and what might that look like? Oh, my God. I am not... That's a perfect question for you. (laughs) (laughs) As a string theorist. (laughs) The thing about climate change is that... As you pointed out, natural climate change has happened before. We've seen little wobbles in the Earth's orbit, and that happens on the timescale of hundreds and thousands of years. And what we're seeing right now is climate change that is quicker than anything that we have ever seen. It's not the wobbles. In that it's not the wobbles, it's not the sun, it's us. And it's so quick. It's not even quick in geologic time, it's quick in actual time. We have seen changes in our lifetimes. Um, And so I don't even know how the human genome can keep up with that. Because if you look at the timescales over which evolution operates and the timescales over which climate change is happening, climate change is just happening so, so quickly. It's happening much, much faster than something like evolution. Do you think God wants to evict us? He wants us out of here? No. <laughs> I believe I believe that the earth is some self-policing, self-maintaining system. So human beings are going to get killed off. So the animals can they'll build their bird's nests inside the Chrysler building and inside Disneyland and everything and then they'll take over the world again and and it'll be fine and we'll be gone. I mean like the earth's a rock, right? It's it's a really special rock. But the earth doesn't care about climate change. It's still going to be here. Um And I actually, I'm not sure that climate change is an immediate threat to human existence, but I know that it is an immediate threat to human happiness and human civilization. And so a lot of times... It's an immediate threat to the way we live now. For sure. A hundred percent. And a lot of times people ask me like, oh, are humans going to be extinct? Are we doomed? And I kind of feel like, I mean, we're probably not doomed, but like I have higher standards. You know what I mean? Like if that's the best thing you can say after a day, you're like, I I didn't go extinct today, then it wasn't a good day. It has to get that far. I mean, that, that's what sometimes people say, is that, well, it's not really a problem unless it's going to kill everybody immediately. But, but, but if your community offers evidence that says, we're at the point now where we are actually seeing the possibility of human extinction, are you going to have the Trumps of the world and his support turn and go, no, we're not? Like, do, they, do, 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 do people you know who are opposed, give me an example if you have one, of people that you knew, scientists, who, quote, unquote, worked for the other side, they helped to tell the side of the story of the major petroleum companies. They, they, they were on the other side who then changed and came over to your side. Have you seen any of those? Richard Muller at uh, Berkeley was uh, someone who was in charge of the BEST program, the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Program. So this was actually a project funded in part by 
Koch brothers and others um, as a way to go through all of the Earth's weather data and say, is this hockey stick of warming that's been spoken about so abundantly in the IPCC reports, is that just a manufactured curve by these you know, leftist scientists? And so they established this group. And Richard is somebody I've known for a long time, and, and he's a very good scientist. He's a physicist. And he brought on a very good team of statisticians. And they went through this, what I think was a billion points of weather data, and put together their own temperature record to great fanfare. And they said, we've got the, the new gold standard. We've, you know, we're this unbiased group. And so the great fanfare, they announced this thing. It was a cover of the Wall, of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and <laughs> matched the record that Kate generates, the one from NASA, to within a hundredth of a degree. It's exactly the same thing. And so in the process of this, they were asking him, so what do you feel about climate change? Said, oh, yeah, it's going on. <laughs> so it was, you know, we wasted, though, five years for this guy to get his funding, to get his team together, to reanalyze all the data, to build this whole story, to only end up with the exact same story that four other groups around the world have done. So it's, you know, we're back right where we started, but we've lost 10 years. You have this program where you bring climate scientists in to talk to investors at the Columbia Business School. What were you hoping the outcome of that would be? So... As Kate mentioned, there are things that we can do as individuals, but what really matters is a societal shift in behavior. And in my opinion, the only way that's going to happen both in the developed world and the developing world is if it's led by the wealthy nations, and in particular wealthy individuals, wealthy companies. So one of the the biggest challenges is how do we move to a world where we have embraced more renewables, where we have sufficient battery storage on the grid, that involves sea changes in investments that are way beyond what any individual can do. I really believe in the power of institutions to affect change. And you just have to look at um, genomic technology, for example. That was largely led by venture capital folks investing in, in university research, for example. So imagine now if we look at this energy problem, which is essentially what the global warming problem is, how do you repower the planet? Well, you come up with a way of Develop, developing this so that there are investable projects, that there are things that can be done tomorrow. Um, uh, agriculture, for example, one of the biggest risks of climate change is that agricultural yields for the four main commodity crops decline with every degree of warming on the order of about 5 to 15 percent depending on the commodity crop. That's a huge thing as you're trying to feed a growing world, your ability to do that with known crop strains available today, that's a challenge that's going to require investment. And you're only going to get that investment when you get large finance institutions to recognize and see the opportunity in there for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work with the United Nations Environmental Program, and I went to Paris uh, to uh, host the Equator Prize for them. You know, one of the things we talk about is, is about indigenous peoples and the stewardship of rainforest and everything. Do you think that that's a factor, planting trees to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is, is a factor, that that's going to make a difference? Absolutely. Saving vegetation around the world? Absolutely. I mean, trees provide so many valuable services for us. We can't plant enough trees. Um, Well, I mean, we can stop cutting them down, um, and we should plant more. Um, We're not going to be able to keep on as we are and just plant our way out of this problem. Um, But just because it won't solve everything doesn't mean it's not part of the solution. What is your opinion, each of you, of nuclear power? Because when I've been... A very uh, um, carry-me-out-in-a-box anti-nuclear in terms of the utility reactors. The military application is a separate one as far as I'm concerned. But the utility reactors, I fought, you know, uh, um, Millstone and uh, 
uh, Oyster Creek and all these ones. They were closing BNL on Long Island and so forth. And, uh, um, you know, beyond the latest in the last couple of decades issues about terrorism and the vulnerability of uh, Indian Point proximate to New York City in terms of terrorism, uh, I just think that, first of all, they're, they're not as cost-efficient as they were advertised years ago. They're these monsters in terms of cost. Uh, fracking is killing them and putting them all out of business. But my other biggest argument was the lie that the nuclear industry would tell habitually about it being a clean source of power as if nuclear fuel rods came off the nuclear fuel rod tree. And, you know, mining uranium and processing uranium is one of the dirtiest and most fouling processes in the industrial world. So, uh, you know, other than that, they were like, well, other than the way we make these rods, this thing's, this stuff is great. It just doesn't pollute anything. Do you agree? Do you think nuclear, we need to maintain nuclear? Do we need more nuclear? I am agnostic on nuclear power. I'm actually willing to be convinced one way or the other because it is true that in the course of generating electricity, nuclear does not produce carbon dioxide emissions. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're absolutely right that you have to take into account mining and enriching the uranium, both of which are energy intensive processes. Very. And then the fact that once you turn on a nuclear reactor, you have a 10,000, 100,000 year nuclear waste problem. Right. Um, and you and have beyond to, that too. And you have to and, yeah. figure out what to do with that. Decontamination, decommissioning, all those companies are going to turn around. They're going to sit there and they go, wow, you know, we thought we had set aside enough money and we thought we had government supervised, supervised funds where we set aside enough money, but we really don't. And then we're going to wonder, are we going to have a lot of Hanfords all around the country? One thing I do want to point out is there hasn't been a nuclear reactor built in this country in my lifetime. Um, and that is not because environmentalists have been mean to nuclear. That's because it's not cost of it. Right. It's not, if, if less it, so than ever. If it made money, people would do this. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of think that how I feel about nuclear doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. What about you, Peter? Yeah, my, my viewpoints are not that different than yours. Uh, but actually, I, I'd like to also ride this uh, this middle ground, which is that let's put it on the table. Let's put it on the table and, and have people decide. And, and, what, and the decision inevitably comes to don't build it near me. And then it comes to where are we going to put the storage? I actually got a, a master's degree in nuclear waste management. And, and, you know, one of the results of my study was that we had no place to bury these. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was to try to, to do, pursue undersea storage. And just leaving it in the tanks in the water on the yeah, site. exactly. And so it's a mess that's not cleaned up. And, and uh, you know, our, the failed Yucca Mountain um, storage facility is a classic example. It's a dead issue. They're never going to come issue. back. Right, exactly. So here we gave our absolute best effort, our top scientists trying to figure out where to put this stuff, and they couldn't agree. But mm -hmm. if you asked me, do you want a nuclear plant built next door to you or a coal plant, um, I'd choose the nuclear plant right. every day. Sure. Um, because if if you are interested in harming people, killing people, the best way to do that is to build a coal plant. Under the umbrella of this idea of... of how much power do we need and how we're going to, where we're going to get it from? Aren't there parts of the world and aren't there e even big European countries where their consumption of power is going down? That's correct. Right? Yeah, I mean, well, certainly in emissions, uh, you know, the UK is actually now emitting less carbon than it was during Queen Victoria's reign. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, and there are other, you know, countries that uh, are, are producing more electricity with much less emissions. And so this... Um, per ca this per capita emissions trend is decreasing for a lot of the 
Um, what did they do that we countries. should be doing? Well, so for example, in Germany, there's this widespread ad- adoption of, of solar and wind to the extent that's really unthinkable here. I mean, it's just a fraction of our energy, our electricity supply in the United States is provided by renewables. And, you know, it's amazing to think about this. If, if you wanted to power the entire nation of, of the United States with solar, for example, you need to cover an area roughly the size of Delaware, a little bit smaller than the size so of Delaware does. for the entire nation. I have this analogy, and it's like we're in a lifeboat. And there's somebody on the lifeboat who's having a panic attack, who, who, like, while we're sleeping, Larry over there is drilling a hole in the bottom of the lifeboat. And the question becomes, in the lifeboat, what do we do about Larry? What do we do in our society about people who don't get it? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I think, first off, we don't let Larry be the president. That would be, <laughs> that would be a good first thing. Um, Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. But I think very few people care deeply where their electricity comes from. You flip a light switch, you want the lights to come on. You're not like, oh, I really want that to be from coal. Another thing that gives me hope is... um, If you look at the generations, if you look at what younger people think about climate change, the incidence of climate denial or climate quote-unquote skepticism is so much smaller in the sort of 18 to 25 group among the students that we work with, the young people that we talk to. Young people understand that this is going to be a problem for future generations. And young people have ordinary, normal, healthy instincts, which they don't learn how to kill until they get into their 30s, <laughs> where it's all about denying reality. Um, who were some of the heroes in government, preferably? So right after the 2016 election, the big conference in earth sciences was in San Francisco. And um, the featured speaker was Jerry Brown. Um, And he took the time to come and talk to an audience of climate scientists and tell us that California takes this very seriously. Mm -hmm. California is going to be at the forefront of not only research and basic science. Okay. Um, I'd I'd never been pandered to before as a scientist. It was amazing. I loved it. That was something that gave me hope and what was kind of a dark time. So what California doing is kind of thrilling. Where they've always been ahead of the curve in terms of all kinds of things, you know, auto emissions and so forth. What about you? What do you well, think? Well, that would have been my choice as well. Jerry, I mean, he's an absolute hero, absolute leader, and a courageous one as well. Level? Sheldon Whitehouse is really very strong. He's a senator from Rhode Island. Right. Uh, very brave in terms of getting his voice out. He's taking on the administration. and But he's a lone voice out there. And I think so much of what needs to be communicated to the American people right now is unity. It's really missing in all of our discussions is we are one country. What is the language, what is the narrative that's required to bring us together? And that's why I like this Green New Deal articulation, which is that it's something that really embraces the combined wealth, the combined goodwill, the common purpose that exists in this country as it did for FDR. The same week as we recorded this interview, the New York Times ran this headline, Trump administration's strategy on climate tried to bury its own scientific report. That report discussed the huge human tragedy facing us if we don't take action. Poverty, starvation, and even more refugee crises. We owe a debt of gratitude to people who dedicate their lives to preventing these tragedies. So thank you to my guests, Peter Domenical of Columbia's Earth Institute, and Kate Marvel of Columbia 
and NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.